Uh, Jesus. Oh, it's always so wonderful to talk about him, isn't it? Jesus, the true king of Israel, had now, in our life of Christ study, he had now presented himself officially to the nation of Israel in Jerusalem in every conceivable way that the Old Testament scriptures had said, had stated that the real deal would do so. How they could know the real Messiah when he, had, when he showed up. He had done everything according to scripture. Now, you do know, I hope you do, I hope you know, that if there had been a rightful king in Israel, sitting on the throne of David, at the time of Jesus Christ, it would have been him, the son of Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth. Joseph had descended from David through his royal throne line. Just look at Matthew, the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph of Nazareth, Jesus' father, had descended from David's throne line through David's son Solomon, who carried on the royal throne line. However, there had been no king in Israel since the time of the Babylonian captivity. And this was because, really we could say, because of the curse God had placed upon the last king of Israel right at the time of the Babylonian captivity. And he was a man named Jeconiah, King Jeconiah. How many of you have ever heard of him? Last king, the last rightful king from the line of David who sat on the throne of Israel. Now, he only sat on that throne for three months. And then King Nebuchadnezzar came and took Israel away into captivity. That was 597 B.C. Well, King Jeconiah was just busy doing nothing. He was a sorry king for those three months. He should, have been, he should have been praying to the Lord to forgive his nation for their sins, but he didn't. He was just busy doing his own thing in his palace. And, and so God cursed him. And uh, look at, if you would, just for a minute, one thing he says to, to uh, Jeconiah in verse 24, which I found interesting as I was reading about this this week. God says through Jeremiah, as I live, saith the Lord, through Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. Okay, Jeconiah was his name, but here God is talking to him, and he removes the, the J-E from his name, because the J-E stands for Jehovah. So he's saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I'm not even going to have my name affiliated with you. So he calls him Coniah. Isn't that cute? Instead of Jeconiah. And then he says, if you were the signet ring on my right hand, a signet ring was a very important ring, you know, it was a ring of authority. He said, if that's what you were, I would take you off and throw you away. And then he gives the curse down in verse 30. Look at this. This is the curse on King Jeconiah and his seed. It says, thus saith the Lord, <clears throat> write ye this man... Speaking of Jeconiah, write him childless. Now, he was not childless. King Jeconiah did have children, and we know this because we're told about them in First Chronicles 3, verses 17 and 18. But God is saying here, write him childless, as though he was childless. And then he goes on and says, a man that shall not prosper in his days, which he surely didn't, because he only sat on the throne three months and then he was carried into captivity and was in a prison in Babylon for 37 years. 
I'll say, write him, you know, childless man that shall not prosper. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Do you know why there's never been a king sitting on Israel's throne since the time of Jeconiah? It's because of this curse. No man from his seed, which would be the royal throne line, is allowed to sit, according to God, upon the throne of Israel. And that's a problem. That's a big problem for anyone claiming to be the rightful king of Israel through the Davidic throne line. Because all such potential candidates had to be descendants through Jeconiah. Because he was the throne line king that came from Solomon, you know, through David. And this would mean that for Jesus himself, uh, he could not sit on the throne of Israel as her rightful king because if you look at his lineage his ancestral line of course passes through Jeconiah that would mean that Christ was ineligible to sit on Israel's throne the divine curse specifically stated that no one of Jeconiah's seed meaning none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of David yet even though Jeconiah's physical descendants could never occupy or rule from the throne of Israel, yet the line of kingship still passed through them. So Jesus still inherited the legal, the legal right to sit on Israel's throne. Although since the time of Jeconiah, no rightful Jewish king was permitted by God's own decree here, his own judgment, to occupy and rule from Israel's throne. No rightful Jewish king. Have you ever thought about it? Isn't it amazing that there has been no king since Jeconiah? That was like 600 years before Christ. No king. And his rightful king. Okay, there was a king. Herod the Great was called a king. But he had no right to be there as king. He was a usurper king. Herod the Great, the one who killed all the babies in Bethlehem, you know, when Jesus was born or when he was about two years old. So how then could Jesus present himself as Israel's true king on Palm Sunday? Well, and this is absolutely marvelous, again, to realize how God has orchestrated all of this out. It's just, it's just incredible. But although, you see, although Joseph was Jesus' legal father, his, he was his stepfather, Yet, he was not his physical bloodline father. Joseph was a descendant of King David through David's son, Solomon. Um, and thus, from Joseph, Jesus, the firstborn son, inherited the legal right to Israel's throne. But because he was not a bloodline descendant of Joseph... He therefore circumvented the curse on Jeconiah's bloodline physical descendants. So this means if Jesus had been a physical descendant of Joseph and not virgin born, he would have been disqualified as Israel's king. Do you understand that? If he had not been virgin-born and Joseph was his true bloodline father, he would have been disqualified to be the Messiah, the king of Israel, the one who God had promised to David would come and sit on his throne forever. That's the Davidic covenant. From David's line would come the Messiah to sit on David's throne forever. He would have been disqualified if it had not been for the virgin birth. 
if it had not been for the virgin birth, now there's a lot of churches, a lot of liberals, a lot of people who say, well, we believe in Jesus, we just don't believe in the virgin birth. Well, I've got news for you. If you do not believe in the virgin birth, then you've got to deal with the Jeconiah curse. <laughs> and if you have to deal with the Jeconiah curse, that means Jesus was not the rightful king of Israel. And never will be. Okay, now as wonderful and as marvelous as all of that is, we still have a problem because the Davidic covenant did say that Israel's true Messiah, the eternal king who would sit on David's throne, had to be from the physical seed of King David. Still, And so, you know, even though from Joseph he inherits the legal throne line right to sit on the throne, we still have a problem without Mary <laughs> because he wouldn't have the bloodline, ancestral line back to King David. But you all know because of Mary, he qualifies because through Mary's lineage, which we have found in Luke chapter 3, that's why the Gospels give us two genealogies. Some people look at those genealogies and they say, oh, errors in the Bible. There's different names after David. Look at all the different names. Well, yeah, duh. That's because one of them, Matthew, gives us the lineage of Jesus through his stepfather, Joseph, and the, the genealogy in, in Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus back to David and all the way back to Adam through Mary, his mother. So isn't that absolutely fantastic? He is, he is the one, it says in, in um, where is it, Psalm 47, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. This whole book speaks of Jesus Christ. And that's what he said, the whole book. Now, um, I want to go on because it gets even better. You have what? Yeah, that's back in, well, we had that in the first book we talk about this. So if anyone wants to go back, because this isn't in your lesson today. You're going to really have to listen good, because nothing I'm giving you today hardly is in the book. But uh, when Jesus came into the city of peace, Jerusalem, allowing the people to proclaim him the rightful heir to David's throne over, over Israel, their long-awaited deliverer, Messiah, he truly was their rightful heir. Heir, not error, heir, H-E-I-R. And there never has been, nor, nor never will be, another rightful heir, heir to the Davidic throne of, uh, of Israel since Jesus. You see, only someone who could come along and prove, first of all, their genealogy back to David through the royal line, anyone who could do that, would have to, would, first of all, they'd have to have their genealogical records to prove it. And no one, no one, no Jewish person has their records to prove where they came from back to David, except Jesus, because all the records were destroyed in 70 AD. They kept all those records in the temple, temple library, and they were all destroyed. So no Jew can really prove anything about his ancestral line, except if he's named Levi. I've told you that before. And he knows he came at least from the tribe of Levi. But isn't it amazing that we not only have one genealogical record of Jesus, but we have two. And how many witnesses do you need to prove something? According? Two. We have two. And he's the only Jewish person who has that. His wasn't destroyed. His is the only one that wasn't destroyed because it was kept in the eternal word of God. 
So no one else who comes along ever since Jesus could prove that they're the rightful king of Israel because of the genealogical records. But even if they could, if they went through the royal throne line, they'd run smack dab into that Jeconian curse. And the only way they could circumvent that is if they also went back to David through his bloodline through a virgin birth. Now, how often is that going to happen? <laughs> Do the statistics. Yeah, once in, once in a whole Earth's universe's lifetime. But that it gets better, okay? I told you it gets even better. It gets more narrow because... Um, do you remember Jacob's dying prophecy? You should because we've just been discussing this back in Genesis chapter 49. Well, in verse 10, have you ever thought about the words of that prophecy? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, that means from Judah's seed, until... Think of that word, until Shiloh come. Now, do you know what that's actually saying? Put it in the reverse. It means that once Shiloh does come, the right to rule and to be a lawgiver will be departed from Judah. Right? Scepter won't depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That means once Shiloh, Shiloh comes, the scepter, the right to rule as king, departs from Judah. Now, since the Messiah, Shiloh, was to come from the tribe of Judah, this means that after his appearance, no one else has the God-proclaimed right to sit on Israel's throne. So, um, what we have is this. Since the time of the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people and the Jeconian curse, no rightful king has sat upon Israel's throne. There was only one time in all of her history, that Israel was presented with the opportunity to receive her rightful king. And that was on Palm Sunday. And since that day of the arrival of Shiloh, the peacemaker, the true Messiah, since that day, Genesis 49.10 kicked into play so to speak. <laughs> and no man has or can sit as king over Israel from the rightful tribe of Judah, and no man will again rightfully do so until when? The only answer to this problem is that Shiloh has to return. He's the only one who can take the scepter and rightfully rule through, you know, tribe of Judah back to King David so the only rightful king that will ever be able to rule, now the Antichrist will try to do that, but he doesn't have anything that will match scripture. <laughs> but the only one who has the right will be Shiloh, so he has to return to take that right. Do you get it? Isn't that marvelous? Now here's how marvelous it is. Why doesn't the world pay attention to that? I don't know. But the, the, the Lord wanted them to because I want you to look at verse 29 here. God wants the world to hear this. Here's what he says. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. I get so, I get so excited about that. I don't think that's ever said anywhere in the rest of the scripture. I forgot to look it up, but I, I mean, does he want people to understand about the Jeconian curse and all how, what he did to make his son the only one who could be rightfully the Messiah? Yes, earth, 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 please pay attention. This is just 
one more of so many proofs that the Jewish people and really the whole rest of the earth should take so seriously when considering the claims of Jesus. But do they? I don't, I don't understand why they don't. They don't even bother to open this book. You try to tell them something like this, and do you think they would get excited? They say, who cares about some curse mates 2,600 years ago? Big deal. I don't believe in the deity of Christ. That's an old myth, you know, blah, blah, blah. They just don't care. What can you do to shake people up? I was so frustrated with my brother-in-law. He died without the Lord. He refused to even listen to us. He denied, denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And what he do? You get so frustrated. I, get, you know, I just wish through osmosis I could give them what I have up here and say, here it is. Let's, you know, just get it. But when somebody is willfully stubborn and won't even listen, very, 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 very sad, very frustrating. But back to our account of, Sun, of Palm Sunday. Now you can turn back to Matthew 21. That's where we'll start today, Matthew 21. When Jesus rode into the city, amidst all the cries and all the acclaims of the thousands of people lining the, um, the way, his way, <laughs> rather than making a royal processional through the rest of the city, you know, going down every avenue, before then going to the temple and making some kind of a State of the Union address there in the temple and performing, you know, maybe some kind of a super spectacular miracle to fully confirm before all of the multitudes that he was indeed their God-sent deliverer. Instead of doing all that, which is what the crowds were hoping he would do and what his disciples were hoping he would do, but instead of doing that, he goes to the temple. Of course, he always goes to the temple, his father's house. But uh, instead of doing something spectacular or giving a speech, he merely dismounts from that little donkey and makes himself quietly available somewhere in a corner of the outer courtyard of the temple, which was huge, something like 13 or 14 football fields big, just massive. Somewhere in that temple precinct, he, he sets himself up and um, makes himself available to all those who need his healing touch. Excuse me. It says in verse 14 of Matthew 21 that the blind and the lame came to him. And I can just picture, we talked about this before, Bartimaeus running throughout Jerusalem with his rope, getting all the blind people to bring them to Jesus. And it's uh, true because Jesus never, ever turned away anyone who came to him. He healed all of them, every one of those blind and lame and probably other people. Because Isaiah 35, 5 says that when the Messiah comes, here's how you can know him another way <laughs> as if we didn't have enough but you'll know him because he'll be able to give sight to the blind and he'll be able to heal the lame and uh, open the ears of the deaf and give speech to the mute and that's exactly what he's doing here another proof of who he is well when we think of the lord's disciples on this day palm sunday we realize that this had to have been for them a very great day of disappointment not that he healed people but think about them. I mean, they've been seeing him heal people for three and a half years. They, I think, they had gotten kind of immune to it, if you can imagine that. Giving someone who's blind their sight, someone who can't walk, making them walk. I mean, it's just incredible. But they, they got, you know, that was, that was just him. That was the thing he did. Well, they were disappointed because he didn't do something bigger. He didn't do something better. 
He was performing miracle after miracle, but it wasn't enough for the crowds either. It wasn't enough to maintain or to even uh, further heighten the great acclaim of the multitudes so that it spread throughout the whole city. And doesn't this just give us further proof that miracles don't last long as far as providing evidence to people about, you know, is it, well, if, if Christ is real, if God is real, etc., if everything you're telling me, Catherine, is true, then um, why doesn't God give me a miracle? I want to see something. I want to see a miracle. Have you ever heard people say that? Well, if I could just see, then I'd believe. My grandmother used to say that all the time. If I could just see something, if he would do something write my name across the sky or, you know, whatever it might be. But that, it doesn't work like that because you give people a miracle and it might last for a little bit, and then what happens? I want another one and another one. Faith does not come by seeing. Now, I have to admit, I've never seen a miracle. I've seen, I mean, I've seen evidence of miracles. I can look at the beautiful trees blooming and I see a miracle. I see a baby born. Whoa, yes. Life itself is a miracle. I see salvation in a changed life. That's a miracle. You're right. But as far as my name being written in the sky, I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to either. But faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. This is where your faith grows. Do, is your faith not grown since we've been studying Christ's life? Every time I get in the Word, my faith gets more and more deeper and deeper Sure. Yeah, thank you. She always has to fill in my sentences. <laughs> but I am so thankful for, for having a life that is built upon solid rock. Because the storms do come. Oh, my. They come. They come frequently, and sometimes they come very, very, very hard. And yet, if your life is grounded on this book, you can survive the storms. I don't know what I would do without this book. And I'm not just sad because of my brother-in-law. I mean, life is rough. What went on in Carthage, just so close to home. I have a Carthage phone number. I would have crumbled a long time ago. And I know I look around this room, every one of you would have crumbled without this book. And that's what's happening. People are crumbling. They're going to pieces because they're not grounded in this book. This is life. This is hope. This is security, people. And I know you know that. That's why you're here. Well, that's my preaching. Um, the, 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 so we see that the, the former fervor of the people quickly, sadly, seemed to dissipate. Once Jesus and, and they were inside the city itself, where all the religious rulers stood around in abundance, we talked about that, how they're absolutely everywhere, with their scowling faces. And also Roman soldiers are standing around everywhere, maybe not with scowling faces, but with big swords. So, uh, you know, since Jesus didn't do anything spectacular, there was no sense in the people putting themselves at risk with the authorities. So it appears that the palm-waving multitudes returned to doing what 
they needed to do in the days preceding the Passover. They got themselves busy standing in line so that they could either be purified or exchange their money or buy their um, lambs or their doves if they were poor or, you know, get busy setting up their tents so that they would have a place to spend the night, etc., etc. And it seems that only some children remained excited and uh, continued to cry out, Hosanna to the Lord. So after this, uh, after uh, making an all-embracing, okay, he goes to the temple, he heals blind and lame people all day long. There's some children running around crying, Hosanna. The religious rulers get mad. And then he gives a scrutinizing look at everything that's going on in the temple. And then we are told that he retreats to the house, which was an oasis for him during the final week of his earthly life. And that was, of course, the home in Bethany of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus which offered some comparative security against perhaps a premature arrest of him. Now that was, these are the end of Sunday events. I'm going to back up and we're going to look at those a little more carefully, but that's the first part of our outline for today's lesson, two acts of judgment, except we could call this one act because I'm not going to have time to get to the second act. The two acts of judgment are on Monday. So we're going to discuss, first of all, the end of Sunday events, and then we're going to begin the beginning of Monday events, which included Monday, he did two basic things. He cursed a fruitless fig tree, a symbolic act regarding the barrenness of Israel's religion. And the second thing he did was again cleanse the temple, which was another symbolic act against the filthiness of Israel's religion. I won't have time to get into the cleansing of the temple, so we'll save that for after our resurrection break. Okay, so for now, let's look at the rest of Palm Sunday. And I'm finally getting into the lesson. So let's look at verses 14 to 17 of Matthew. All right, Matthew 21, I mean, Matthew 21, 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, those chief priests and scribes were very happy. <laughs> You're very alert. <laughs> they were sore displeased. They were not happy. And so they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? You hear what these children say, Jesus? Aren't you going to do something about it? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, yes, I hear. Have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Okay, we are told back in verse 41 that when Jesus went into the temple, the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. Now, Matthew's the only gospel writer who tells us this information. I thought it was interesting that Mark and Luke didn't, and John did. And then I got to thinking, you know why probably Matthew... Matthew was there. Matthew knew what it was like to be an outcast. Remember what he had been? He had been a tax collector. He was an outcast of society. So he included this about these outcasts being healed here, whereas Mark and, you know, and Luke and John didn't. Well, you know that at a time like Passover, when it literally millions of people were in the city um, to celebrate the feast, there would also be extra... Um, beggars in the city. Blind people from all over would make them their way, you know, ask somebody to help them get there. And lame people would all, they'd all want to be in a city at a time like this because they would get more alms. There would be more people in the city, so they'd get more alms for their begging. Furthermore, 
A lot of the people who came, I think, this particular Passover who had, had handicap problems and illnesses were really hoping that Jesus would show up. Now, they had heard a lot about Jesus, the miracle worker. And remember the focal question of the day before he arrived? Everybody was asking, do you think he'll come? Do you think he'll show up? Well, these people, the blind, the lame, etc., were really definitely hoping he would. And when he did show up, I am sure that they were included in those who were moved. Remember how we talked about, look at verse 10, how all the city was moved? When he came in and all everybody was hailing him and they were saying, who is this? The whole city was moved, stirred, shaken. Well, I believe that the blind and the lame were among those who were stirred, moved, shaken. They were excited because this, you know, they had great expectation that with him now in the city, perhaps this day that the Lord had made would turn out for them a day in which they could rejoice and be glad. How's it go? This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Anyone who could rejoice, if anyone could rejoice that day, guess who it turned out to be? all these down and outers because every one of them who was blind received sight every one of them who was not whole received their wholeness so they really could say this is the day that the lord hath made isn't it interesting that the lord jesus instead of having gone into the temple and doing something spectacular which he could have done he could have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and let the holy angels catch him isn't that what satan tried to tempt him to do in the wilderness he could have done that, and the angels surely would have swooped down in front of all those millions of people, and they would have caught him. But that would appeal to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh of the massive crowds, wouldn't it? That would be succumbing to temptation. Um, or he could have, you know, he could have succumbed to the pride of life by standing proudly before all of them and using his oracle skills to sway them into a state of emotional adoration where they were ready to do what, you know, you can see the crowd swaying, and they're just ready to do whatever he next commands them to do. Go and slaughter the Romans. And they could have, with three million people, they could have slaughtered every Roman, even with their swords, they could have done that. But instead of doing something like that, he went into the temple so as to make himself quietly available to those who were the outcasts of society, the down and outers. And with no fanfare at all, he simply ministered to them. And he made them happier than they had ever been in their lives on that day. What a great contrast we have here between the Lord Jesus and the religious system. You know, the spirit, supposed spiritual leadership of, of Judaism. Did you know that most of the religious crowd of the Lord's Day forbid the lame and the blind and the deaf and the otherwise handicapped person, of course the leper, but they forbid them to offer sacrifices in the temple. They forbid them to be a part of the uh, a feast day like this, the Passover. Isn't that incredibly cruel? But that was all due to their per perverted theology that said all such suffering was a result of divine punishment for sin. So to them, to their way of thinking, to their perverted theology, Jesus was interfering with God's judgment on these people. Now, I want you to just think on a different note here for a minute. They could not accuse him here, as they so often did. They could not accuse him of breaking their Sabbath rules. 
by healing people. You know, they always would say if he healed somebody on the Sabbath that they were breaking the Sabbath rules. And they called the healing a work. Well, they could not do that here. Um, Why? Because it wasn't the Sabbath. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because there are... Basically, this gets really complicated, but we'll get into this later on in our Passion Week study. We'll get into it more. But there are three different ideas about when the Lord was crucified. Some say he was crucified. You know, the traditional is on Friday, Good Friday. However, because you don't get three full nights and three days with that death, there are those who say he was crucified on Thursday of the Passion Week. And then you have a crowd that says, and it really doesn't make a big, it's not a big difference, big deal, really. But um, there are those who say, no, he was crucified on Wednesday. Now, those who say he was crucified on Wednesday have to have him coming into Jerusalem to officially present himself to Israel on Saturday. So they call it Palm Saturday, all right? And, and it has to be Saturday because that's the 10th of Nisan. And to have him crucified on the 14th, which is Passover, that's Wednesday. You have to back up so that the 10th is on Saturday. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to go with a Wednesday crucifixion because of what we're looking at right now. He was healing people on this day. Okay? And don't you know that when the authorities came to criticize him, the first thing out of their mouths would have been, you're breaking the Sabbath. They don't say that because it's not the Sabbath. It's Sunday. Their Sabbath was Saturday. Furthermore, he could not have ridden on a donkey into the city from Bethany without breaking not only their man-made rules, but also true Mosaic law. Furthermore, it was against Mosaic law for people on Saturday to break branches off of trees. So none of that could have happened on the Sabbath. None of it. They would have, I mean, the people wouldn't have done it because they wouldn't be breaking the laws. So he did ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Aren't you all glad to know that you can say Palm Sunday (laughs) instead of Palm Saturday? All right. Anyway, um, here again, we have another great contrast between the religious rulers, um, even though, you know, they would not have let the blind and the lame participate in their religion and in their temple sacrifices, but the true temple of God warmly welcomed these people. So what a contrast. Well, verse 15 says that the chief priests, who would be Sadducees, the chief priests and the scribes observed the wonderful things that he did. And I've got news for you. That is not their assessment of what he was doing. That's Matthew's assessment of what he was doing. They didn't like what he was doing, so they would have never said it was wonderful. And something else that they didn't like was the cries of the children who were also in the temple. And this, again, would speak of the outer courtyard, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. These children had heard all of the earlier shouts and cries of the great masses as they hailed Jesus' entrance into the city. And now, even though all the adults had toned down and lost their former enthusiasm. These children, these precious children, were still caught up in the earlier excitement of the day. You know, unlike their parents and unlike all the sourpussed faces of the religious leaders, these children 
had no problem with a man being hailed as the son of David who was over there in a corner somewhere giving sight to blind people and healing all kinds of crippled situations. They had no problem with that at all. In fact, with greater perception and less prejudice than the esteemed chief priests and the scribes, these children saw this as nothing but further evidence that he was indeed the son of David, the true Messiah. So they were apparently the only ones who continued to cry out what earlier thousands, literally thousands, had been crying out to Jesus, which was Hosanna to the son of David. And as we talked about earlier, the true and only one who qualifies to be the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. But as mentioned, all the wonderful healing miracles that the Lord was doing here and all the wonderful praises of the young children made the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the scribes sore displeased. Right, Catherine? Sore. Don't you love that expression? Sore. Have you ever been sore displeased? In my lingo, that's hot to trot. They were angry. They were very frustrated. They were not happy about this. They were furious. They always are. These guys never, they don't know how to smile, do they? (laughs) So they went to him and they angrily said, Hearest thou what these, you hear what these children are saying? You know, this reminds me of the Pharisees earlier that day. Over in Luke 19.39, the Pharisees had commanded Jesus to silence his disciples who were proclaiming him as the king. And here now these chief priests and scribes are incensed that he did not tell the children to be quiet. How could he let such innocent ones run around claiming him to be the Messiah? How could he, how could he mislead them like that? And how could he deceive them into thinking he was somebody he wasn't? Plus, didn't he know that that was ill-mannered behavior? for children to act like that in the temple precincts. It's Passover. It's a solemn feast day. Everybody is supposed to look like us, you know, (laughs) and be serious. Why should these children be happy when we're not? (laughs) You know what hypocrites they were? Do you know what they had going on in that very temple courtyard? Worse than the children. Well, the children were doing what was right. They were praising Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Can you imagine? They had a bizarre set of, I mean, animals all over the place. You know what comes with animals? Stink and, you know, the other things. and um, Money changers that were ripping the people off, and yet they said, oh, they're being ill-mannered. They're not respecting the piety of this, this place. They're really just a bunch of hypocrites here. And I thought it was funny. Why did they go to Jesus to tell the children to be quiet? Why didn't they just tell the children to be quiet? I guess they knew who had the real authority around there. (laughs) The children might not have paid much attention to them. I don't know, but I just thought that was interesting. Well, there is another great contrast that we see here in that the ones who should have been leading the worship for Jesus were angry with him. I mean, if anyone should have been leading the, the praise songs that day for Jesus, it should have been the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, shouldn't it? I guarantee you they knew about the Jeconiah curse. I guarantee you that when Jesus arrived on the scene three years earlier, the first thing those guys did is go to the temple library to check out his lineage. And what they saw there, uh uh-oh, presented a problem. We better not bring that up. You know they would have brought it up if they didn't know he was the rightful heir to the throne, both through his father and his mother. But they never mentioned that. 
They checked that out, I guarantee you. They knew about the Jeconiah curse. They knew about Genesis 4. They knew all that. They were the students of the scripture. They should have been leading the worship service, but they're all over there, you know, grumbling and complaining with their little puckered up faces. So the children are the ones who are leading the worship of the Lord Jesus. And this so aptly teaches us the truth that Jesus is going to teach in the next chapter of Matthew, Matthew 22, when he gives the parable of the wedding banquet for the king's son. In that parable, Jesus talks about a king who has a wedding banquet. His son is going to get married, and he gives a wedding banquet for his son sends out invitations to all the supposedly important people in town and um, instead you know they all ignore the invitation and don't give it the proper proper respect they should and don't even come and so he sends out invitations through his servants to all those on the highways and byways and they do come his point was that many who appear to be religious and who say you know who think they're going to get into the kingdom of heaven like pharisees and sadducees and scribes don't get into the kingdom but those who realize their need, such as blind and lame people, and those who are as little children, in the humble purity of their faith, they do accept so easily and so readily. They do accept God's gracious invitation, and they get in. What does it tell us in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven? God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the strong. Boy, don't we know that just by experience? The foolish, the weak things of this world he chooses to give. Because that way, who gets the glory? The foolish, weak thing? No, he does. He gets the glory. So here in his, this is in verse 16, in his brilliant answer to, the, to their criticism, and his, all of his answers are always so brilliant, after they ask him, don't you hear what these children are saying? He says, of course, you know, of course I hear them. Yay. And then how does he usually answer questions? With questions of his own. He asks them a question of his own. And what he refers them to here is Psalm 8, verse 2. He says, have ye never read? You, you experts of the law, you students of the scripture, what's the matter with you? Haven't you ever read Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. Did you know that the most perfect, the most God-honoring, the most genuine, heartfelt, humble, unprejudiced, non-tainted with doubt and skepticism, praise comes from the little ones? It does. I mean, they're so open to the gospel, aren't they? How many of you teach little children in Sunday school or somewhere? They're just so open to what you... T they don't have all that prejudice and that all the skepticism that the world has brainwashed them with. And they just readily believe what you tell them about Jesus. And they, when they sing their little songs, Jesus loves little children, Jesus loves me, this I know is so precious. Because that's praise that just the Lord loves that praise. Did these esteemed students of the scripture not know that these young children... <clears throat> we're merely fulfilling prophecy. Here we go again. Another prophecy being fulfilled on Palm Sunday. So his answer to them was really brilliant. It's just absolutely wonderful, to use Matthew's phrase. Um, because with this one simple verse from Psalm 8, he, he, did four, he accomplished a number of things. First of all, it provided, his answer provided a scriptural basis for him to refuse to silence the children. 
which he did. He did not silence the children. Second, it silenced the complainers. <laughs> they wanted him to silence the children, but his answer silenced them because they didn't have, they didn't know how they could answer this because it was straight from Scripture. Third, by using this psalm, first from this psalm, he was claiming deity. Because that psalm, if you go back and read it, it's, uh, it begins by saying, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Speaking about God. So in using that verse in reference to himself, he is claiming deity. Fourth thing he's doing is he's reminding everyone who's listening, and his disciples would be right there, that it is only those who are willing to become as little children in their ready acceptance of him who do enter into the kingdom of heaven. What did he say in verse uh, chapter 18? Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in, ver- in chapter 19, he had said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven consists of little children. When we get there, we're going to be just like little children, also in our praise of him throughout all of eternity. Pure, perfected praise will come from our lips. They're so innocent and so precious. So on the day of the Lord's presentation of himself to Israel on Palm Sunday, he received three responses from the three official representative groups of Israel's religious leaders. The Pharisees, who we saw in Luke 19.39 and John 12.19, They gave their response to his official presentation. And then we have here the chief priests, who are the Sadducees, and the scribes, the three primary religious groups. And the three responses that they give to him on this day of his official presentation are basically, you put them all together, and they come out to total rejection. Here's basically what they're saying to him. Silence everyone, your disciples, the people, The children silence everyone who proclaims you as the king, as Messiah, as Shiloh, as peacemaker, as the son of David. Silence them. What do you want to do? Deceive the whole world into going after you? That would be their combined response, which is one of rejection. What Jesus came to offer was himself. He came to offer the way of salvation, the way to pass from death to life and to become citizens of his eternal kingdom. However, if a person such as my brother-in-law, who I loved as a brother, I I do have a brother, but I love John more than my own brother because I don't even know my brother. I have a brother and a sister, and they never have anything to do with me. They don't talk to me. I never hear from them. So John was like the only brother I've really ever known. Nice man, generous, kind, but lost. He did not accept the only way of salvation. If a person or if a nation, listen America, oh earth, 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 (laughs) will not have him, guess what? He will not force himself upon them. Rather, what, what happens is what we find ominously in the next words of verse 17, where it says, and he left them. Three official rejections. So what did he do? He left them. These words speak up more of just than his physical departure. They warn us of this spiritual truth. If you will not have Jesus 
he will go. He, he won't force himself on anyone. If you won't have him, he'll go. But when he goes, what goes with him? Life, light, and the only hope of salvation. Go with him. Well, look over at Mark 11, 11. Mark 11, 11, real quick. Keep your finger, I think, in Matthew 21. Mark 11, 11 tells us that he departed at eventide. But before he departed, it says in Mark 11, 11, and Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around upon all things... Okay, Mark just skips everything that happened that day that Matthew told us. He skips the healing of the blind and the lame and the children's praises and the scowls of the religious rulers, and he just goes straight to Jesus' scrutinizing look at everything that happened in the temple, um, that was going on in the temple. And then it says, And now that eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So he left. He took a good look at everything that was going on. Annas' bazaar, the money changers, the animal sellers. He didn't like what he saw. He took a good look at it all. And then he took his 12 and went back to Bethany. And the fact that Jesus did not spend his nights in the city really is an indictment upon the city. Christ goes where he is welcomed. He departs from where he's not welcomed, but he goes to where he is welcomed. And where was he welcomed? In the hospitable, warm, loving home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And I thought about, wouldn't it be a wonderful prayer to pray, God, make me a Bethany home for the Lord Jesus. Make me an oasis in this dark, wicked world. For Jesus, a place where he can always find a warm and loving welcome. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Well, now we turn to consider the events of the next day of the Passion Week. We're moving at a just such a fast pace here. We'll be done in no time. We're moving on to Monday already. <laughs> oh. And the two events, I've already told you, two events of that day were very uncharacteristic for Jesus' first coming because his first coming was not when he came to condemn or to judge came to minister and you know not be ministered unto he came to seek and to save that which is lost so this is uncharacteristic of him that he curses a fig tree and that he cleanses the temple although he did that also at the beginning of his ministry but uh, we want to look now at the only miracle jesus ever performed as an act of judgment the cursing of the fig tree now you say oh what about when the pigs ran off the cliff and drowned in the sea of galilee well, Jesus wasn't really responsible for that. The demons were. The demons that he cast into the pigs. So you can argue about that one. But most commentators say this is his only miracle that was an act of judgment. Um, let's see. I've got to skip some things because of time's sake. All right. Let's just look at it. Math, uh, Mark 11. Let's look at verses 13 to... No, 12 to 14. And on the morrow, that would be Monday. If you want to write in your Bible, you can write Monday there. On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came. If haply, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Remember what time of year this is? early April and in Jerusalem and even here 
I have fig bushes in my yard. You don't get figs in April. They come in June. So this was not yet the time for figs, Mark tells us. And yet this tree was full of leaves. Verse 14, and Jesus answered. Isn't that weird? Jesus answered and said unto it. Jesus is speaking to a tree here. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I didn't hear the tree say anything. But Jesus did. <laughs> so he's answering it. And he says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Underline that word forever. <laughs> and his disciples heard it. Okay, then it goes on to when he comes into Jerusalem and cleans the temple. But let's stop at verse 14. Okay, apparently <clears throat> the Lord, I don't think, slept very much Sunday night. After he took that look around at what happened, was going on in the temple, I think his heart was set on getting back there and cleansing it. He had a zeal for his father's house, and uh, he was anxious to do the will of his father. I think he got up very early uh, Monday morning and probably did what he usually did and went out to pray somewhere, came back to the house, woke up his disciples and departed with them even maybe before the sun came up. And the reason I say that is because he's not even, he's probably only a mile away from Bethany and he sees a fig tree up there with leaves and he notices he's hungry. He finally, he realizes he's hungry. That means he didn't have breakfast, Right? That means that he must have gotten up before Martha. <laughs> you see my reasoning? <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> I'm sure Martha and Mary would have prepared him a wonderful breakfast if they were up by the time he left. But I think that's why he got hungry. And he didn't notice his hunger till he saw, saw the tree. Because, you know, his work, not his stomach, was always his central focus. All right, so uh, as the Lord and his men are walking toward Jerusalem from Bethany, he sees this tree ahead of him, which has a whole lot of leaves on it, which was unusual for that time of year. The leaves on the tree made it stand out from any other fig trees that might have been along the way. And I think there were a lot of fig trees along the way, but they were all barren, no, no fruit, no leaves. And the reason I say that is because when you leave Bethany and you go to Jerusalem, you pass near Bethpage. Remember Bethpage? That's where he got the two donkeys. What does Bethpage mean in Hebrew? House of young figs or house of unripe figs. So there's a lot of fig trees around. But this one stood out. Now, we know that this one was not on private property in case anybody has a problem with Jesus wanting to take fruit that belonged to somebody else, which was okay by the Mosaic law, but for those who say, well, he'd be stealing, it was along the highway there. And we are told that in Matthew. I didn't tell you, read that, but Matthew says it was just right along the highway, so it was free for anybody to just pick because it wasn't private property. Okay, well, it must have been in a good location because obviously it was getting a lot of sunlight and a lot of water because its development was way ahead of the others. Now, seeing the leaves on this tree gave the Lord some hope that when he got to it, there would be some, what, figs. Have you ever eaten a fig? Oh, it's my favorite fruit of all. It's absolute. They're just mouth-watering. Don't think of fig newtons. Nothing like a fig newton. Right off the tree when they're just perfectly ripe, they're just, it's like manna from heaven. So delicious. So he's got his, you know, hope set on a, having a fig from that fig tree, but when he gets there, of course, he finds nothing. Now, what we have in this whole miracle here is a is a um a picture of the god man the hypostatic union a mystery of the god man that jesus was 100 percent man and 100 percent god because he's hungry you know he could he could empathize with the feelings of our infirmities he certainly knew what it was like to be weary he knew what it was like to be hungry he knew what it was like to have sorrow 
and cry and have a heartbreak. He understand pain. He understood it all. And yet he was also God. We have here a picture of the duo nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The previous day, think about just Sunday morning, the day before when he went to this area of Bethpage. He knew exactly all the minute details that his disciples would find with regard to those two donkeys when they got to Beth, you know, the, the village. That they'd be there, the mother and the, and the colt, and they'd be tied up to a door in the middle, you know, where two ways cross and all that. He knew every detail even though he hadn't been there. That's his deity, right? His omniscience. Yet Monday morning, he's in the same area, and he has to actually go to the tree to see if it has fruit. And you go, why Why would he do that? Well, because he, he would have known it had fruit. I mean, didn't have fruit if he used his omniscient powers, right? But we find in the scripture that Jesus never used his divine powers for himself. He only used them to fulfill prophecy or to illustrate the truth of his words and his divine principles. So he didn't use, you know, remember another temptation of Satan in the wilderness when the Lord was hungry after 40 days and 40 nights and Satan came and tempted him to turn the stones into bread, but he didn't do it because he never used his divine powers just for himself, which is why he wouldn't have jumped off the temple either. Pride of, uh, pride of life thing. This would have been lust of the flesh. So when he gets to that fruitless fruit tree, fruitless fig tree, he, um, he finds it's, it's empty. Now, what could he have done? <laughs> yes, that would have not. He could have changed all the leaves to figs. There was abundance of leaves. He could have changed them to figs. He had changed water into wine, right? He could have done that, but he didn't. He accepted the normal limitation of human nature and used his supernatural powers only when it was necessary to fulfill his mission. Now, saying that, then the next thing he does is use his divine powers because he curses the tree, and immediately the disciples don't see that till the next day, Tuesday morning. They don't see that the tree died. It withered at its roots, and it totally died. And the next day, they're amazed. They say, that's the tree you cursed. Look, it's dead. They didn't get the miracle because he just spoke the miracle on this day and they didn't see immediate results. But the tree immediately did die at its roots. So one minute he's not using his divine powers and the next minute he is. So that's, again, the mystery of the God-man. So this particular fig tree was um, being deceptive. This was a hypocrite fig tree. <laughs> because it was already bearing leaves, so it was giving a false appearance that it had something to satisfy hunger. It was a situation of false advertising, which Jesus was going to use as an illustration of hypocrisy in religion. You know, ever since the beginning, when Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sinful nakedness with what? Fig leaves, Genesis 3:17. Ever since that time, the fig leaf has been a symbol of religion. Because all religions, and when I say that, I do not include Christianity, is not a religion. It is not a religion. It is not man's way to God. It's God's way to God. It's, a, it's a, how to have a personal relationship with the Lord. But all religions are nothing but man's attempt to cover his sin, his sin, his own way, with his fig leaf ways. 
Not God's way, but his way. So the scripture tells us that Jesus answered and said unto it, um, he was speaking to, what he's really doing is speaking to, to all religions, and in particular to the religion of Israel at that time, Judaism. He's saying, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He was answering the deceptive profession of the tree, the false advertising, the hypocrisy of the tree. For, you know, he was answering it for saying that it looked like it was something that it wasn't. Looking, it looked like a fruit-bearing tree when it wasn't. <clears throat> so the cursing of this tree was a spiritual lesson. In the scriptures, many times, you know, a fig tree symbolizes the nation of Israel. The leaves of this tree here speak of her religion, which at the time of Christ had become nothing but an outward show just a lot of leaves no fruit just a lot of leaves she had her temple she had all of her uh, elaborate rituals and her ceremonies and her sacrifices and her offerings and and every outward indication that she had a true relationship with God and yet when Jesus came he found what no fruit now there was some fruit but it was fruit produced by him not by Israel, not by Israel's religious rulers. He produced the fruit. The disciples were his fruit, not Israel's fruit. Her religion had become so judgmental, so sectarian, uh, that she was no benefit spiritually to the rest of the nations of the world, which had been her God-given task to, to be. She was supposed to be filling this, the spiritual hunger of all the nations of the world. She wasn't doing that. She wasn't even satisfying her own spiritual hunger. She was totally barren. In cursing the barren fig tree here, the Lord was pronouncing judgment upon Judaism. And this disagrees with what your books say, so I'm really going to get you confused because I changed my mind since I wrote those books. I say in the books that it represents Israel. But because I got to looking at the curse itself, no man ever eat fruit of eat forever, I thought, that can't be Israel, because Israel will bear fruit one day at the time of the Messiah's return. She will bear fruit. So this cannot speak here of Israel. What it speaks of is Israel's religion, Judaism. So I think that'll come into play when you try to answer question number eight, okay? <laughs> you can figure out the mess. You poor leaders next time. But you got two weeks to do it, so. But think about it, Judaism. It is... I guess it is the most empty religion that there is. Now, all the religions are empty. None of them produce fruit because apart from Christ, there is no fruit. Um, but Judaism is such a strange religion. I don't know how much you know about it, but the whole system was built around the temple and the sacrificial system and the, and the priesthood and all, you know, everything that goes on in the temple and the sacrifices, the offerings. And yet, since the first century... There has been no temple. When was it destroyed? Forty years after Christ, 70 A.D. No temple since the first century. No sacrifices, no priests, no nothing. It's interesting to talk to a Jewish person, ask them what they believe. They kind of just don't, most of them don't even believe anymore in the, in the Messiah. Most of them are just totally secular. But if you go to the Orthodox Jews... All they have is the remembrance of the past and their hope toward the future when they can finally reestablish their religious system and get their hands on the Temple Mount. 
They have everything ready to go so they can reestablish the whole sacrificial system all over again. They've got the priesthood ready. They've got all the furniture that's necessary to go into the holy place and out in the... They got it all ready. They just need to get their hands on the Temple Mount. Boy, don't you know that'll start a World War III to get their hands on that, the Muslims. So that's why the Antichrist has to be some kind of peacemaker. But he'll allow them to reinstate Judaism for the first three and a half years. But you see why there is no um, temple anymore, no sacrificial system, no priests ever since the time of Christ? It's because all of that point was, the only point of it was to point Israel to Christ. The whole purpose for the temple, the sacrificial system, the feast days, the, the offerings, Every little detail about the tabernacle and the temple, everything was to point to Christ. And since Christ came, there is no need for any of that because he is the true temple of God. He is the true, the once for all sacrifice for sin. No need for more sacrifices. Once for all, he did it. There's no need for um, the priesthood because he is the true high priest. Now, all who believe on him, we are a royal priesthood. We have total access to God because of him, don't we? We don't need a priest to intercede on our behalf. That's why the veil was rent from top to bottom at the time he died. (laughs) Now we all can go boldly before the throne of grace. So there's no need for the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood. And that's why it was destroyed is because there's no further need of it. The cursed and withered fig tree is a picture of the barrenness of religion in general, but of Judaism in specific. And I'm speaking of the the hypocritical system of Judaism that Israel's leaders had created out of the genuine system of worship that God had given them to point to his son. So the fig tree here represents Judaism and not Israel. Now, Israel was represented to us in the parable of the barren fig tree. I don't know how many of you would remember that, but it was over in Luke 13. And I think something like lesson number 102, when we discussed his parable of the barren fig tree. In that parable, Jesus spoke of a certain man who had a vineyard. And in the middle of the vineyard, he planted a fig tree, which is weird. You don't usually put a fig tree in a vineyard. Vineyard is grapes. But the vineyard represented the world. The, the fig tree represented Israel. Okay? The owner of the, fi- the vineyard was God. Picture of God. Well, he planted the fig tree there because it was his chosen object. You know, he, wanted, he liked figs. He wasn't going to take the figs to the market like the grapes. grapes. He, um, the, the figs were going to be for his own personal delight. But after three years of going to the fig tree and constantly finding it barren... He decided he was going to what? Cut it down. But his vine dresser interceded on behalf of the fig tree and said, no, please, give it one more year. I'll dung it and I'll water it and I'll take good care of it. And, and if after another year it's still barren, you can cut it down. Well, who do you think the interceding vine dresser was? The Lord Jesus Christ. Into his fourth year of ministry... He, you know, he, he went three and a half years. I believe that extra year he pleaded for was that extra half a year. And, you know, he tried to get Israel to bear, bear fruit. But as we just saw on Palm Sunday, 
still rejected him. And so God went ahead and cut down Israel. But do you know an interesting thing about fig trees? If you cut them down, and I know this from personal experience because we have fig trees. And we had one very big fig tree that was blocking our parking spot where we put our truck. Um, and so my husband got out there with his chainsaw. I hate to see him with a chainsaw because he doesn't, oh, when he prunes, he prunes. But anyway, that tree was gone, right? You know, the whole thing. I said, why'd you do that? You could have just cut away the branches that were in the way, but no, right down to the bottom. But <laughs> guess what happened? That it's bigger and better than it ever was. Because if you cut down a fig tree, it still has its root structure in the ground and it will come back. You see, Israel was cut down because the church was grafted in, but she was not destroyed because her root structure was still in the land. Right? And we have seen her come back to life. Since in 1948, she came back to life. Didn't she? She did. She, so, so the curse was on her religion, not on her as a nation. The, the fig tree here in, in what the Lord cursed, it was, look at verse 20 of Mark. Are you in Mark? I don't know where, are we in Mark? Look at verse 20. This is going to be the next day, Tuesday morning. In the morning of Tuesday, as they, the disciples passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. So this cannot be Israel because Israel didn't die at the roots. It was just cut down, going to come back to life. This, therefore, I've changed my mind, is um, representing her, her religion. Now, there's another parable. I'm really going to confuse you. <laughs> there's another parable about a fig tree that Jesus gives. We haven't gotten to it yet, but it's in the Olivet Discourse. And you've all heard this one because people make a lot of, they make a big deal about this. And here's what he said in that parable. Oh, where am I? I've lost my place. He says, okay, this is Matthew 24. You might want to go there. Matthew 24, just a few pages back. Matthew 24, look at verse 32. All right, this is a, a very short parable, but here's what it is. Now, Jesus in Matthew 24, before we get to this parable, has been talking about the signs before his return at the second coming. Not the signs that precede the rapture of the church, but the signs that will precede his return at the end of the tribulation. Okay? So he's been giving them all of that. And then he says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. When you see a fig tree with leaves on it, you know summer's around the corner. My fig trees don't have leaves yet, but I can see the little buds are coming out. And that's telling me summer is coming. And the figs are coming in June. <laughs> okay, so likewise ye... When ye shall see all these things, all the things he had just told them about, you can look at all the verses that precede that, then you can know that it is near. What is near? His return is near even at the doors. You see, the fig tree Israel is back in the, it's is rooted, it's come back to life, but she will again even have leaves on her tree because she will reinstitute, reinstate her religious system under the umbrella of protection of the Antichrist. 
he will somehow or another manage to get her the temple mount and she'll just start the sacrificial system all over again won't take her but a day because everything's ready and uh, I guess she's got to find the ashes of the red heifer or whatever but anyway the Ark of the Covenant they'll have the whole thing going again so when you see Israel again reinstating her religious system and offering sacrifices there in the temple when you again see the leaves what do you know is going to happen now you and I won't have to be looking for those because we'll be gone but he's telling those of the tribulation when you see that guess what I'm about to come back okay I hope you under you seem like you all understood me I could tell by your faces and your nods that you were <laughs> better than yesterday's crowd but then they haven't been at this as long as you guys you're the old pros <laughs> let's pray father God may our delight always be in the word of the Lord may we always be like little children with perfect praise of you May we meditate day and night on that which, um, that, that which is contained in your word. May we truly, truly bear much fruit, not just leaves, Lord, but true fruit. May we occupy and bear fruit until you do come. Thank you again for the truth of your word and how excited it makes us, Father. And, and help us just to really, truly have our lives grounded on the rock so that when those storms come, and they do, that we will be able to stand firm because we know without a shadow of a doubt that this is your inspired word. Who else could have ever, ever written such an amazing book but you? Thank you, Jesus, for all you mean to us. And um, just go with us and bring us all back safely. And may we truly all celebrate your resurrection and the resurrection that we all will experience one day because of our faith in you this holiday. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.